Welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And we're talking about English queens this week, specifically Mary of Tech. Yes, the what I like to consider the first modern queen consort. Yeah, and I don't know if this bodes well or bad, but Claire was just like, man, she's boring. Well, <laughs> yes, we, she's compared to some of the people we've covered. There's no scandal. I just was saying, you know, she was kind of perfectly suited to her role and she was a really good queen. And so it's 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 not full of uh, twists and turns, but that's kind of interesting in its own way. So we'll get into that. First, do you have some gossip for us? Yes. Um, I don't think we have any royal oops, but as always, let us know. There's a couple pieces of gossip that I wanted to cover just because I thought they were both a little interesting. I think the first one... If anybody follows royal news, this won't be a surprise, but I think we have to talk about Prince Philip. Don't let your 97-year-old grandpa behind the wheel. <laughs> yes, specifically the fact that he got in a car accident. And look, I read the story and supposedly there was glaring sun and he pulled out and he got broadsided by the other vehicle, although of course this is his fault since he was the one pulling out into the road. And so there's been a lot of debate, is 97 years old, too old to be driving you know, I think that's something that everybody kind of wrestles with because it's not even a question of ability, but it's more about like decision making and um, reflexes, you know, things are just a little bit slow. So who knows what happened? But now there is a raging debate in the media about whether he should be driving. And if he continues to drive, is this him getting special treatment and then it didn't help that two days later, a brand new Range Rover was delivered and everybody said, well, hold the phone. I thought he was going to stop driving. And then he was photographed driving without his seatbelt. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's all upset because it was two women in the other car and a nine month old baby. So everyone's, you know, thinking that the palace is maybe not handling the PR around this very well. Well, and I also read that they had sent them like an apology note but it like really wasn't an apology it was like some bizarre turn of phrase that was like we'll hope you'll remember the majesties or something like it was like the people in the accident were like this isn't an apology (laughs) but I think what's interesting is I wouldn't apologize the first thing they tell you if you're in an accident never apologize yeah it's not something that you'd want on the written record but yeah maybe some flowers (laughs) maybe maybe just a simple sorry this happened hope everyone's okay type of thing um it's all kind of an interesting debacle because what I think is interesting is it's sort of showing or revealing how um you know Prince Philip has not only seemed to have retired from public life but reading between the lines of some of these stories it doesn't really seem that he and the queen are spending that much time together so I think he's maybe just off in his own little cottage just no, doing whatever he wants. No, he and the queen are in the same place. Like But not in the same as, not in the same house. Yeah, they are. She hasn't resumed her um her duties. Like she's still on vacation. But that's he, why they're both in the country. But she's in the main house at Sandringham and he's at a cottage. Oh, okay. Well maybe he's out hunting or maybe they're ninety seven and ninety three yeah. years old and like they don't need to That's what I'm saying is I think that he's literally just doing his own thing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with their marriage. I mean, they're 97 and 93 at this point. 
you know, whatever. But um, I just think it's kind of interesting because if he had his way, he probably wouldn't want any of this to have made it into the papers. Well, and then I saw the queen was also photographed driving without a seatbelt. So they clearly have some issues with proper, you know, part of that is those country roads. People tend to do that. I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying it also seems to me to be generational because when they learned to drive, cars didn't have seatbelts. So, you know, there's that. But um, all in all, kind of an interesting story from a PR perspective in that it's kind of been a PR disaster. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's lucky nobody was seriously injured. I did see one horrible comment somewhere that said, well, at least we know he's still alive because some people were starting to think it was like a weekend at Bernie's situation. Oh, wow. Where uh, he's no longer with us, but it hadn't been announced. I don't think they would do that. Yeah, I don't really see the point of that. But So that's that's one little piece of gossip. And then the other piece was that... um, Speaking of living in the country, Harry and Meghan are rumored to be quitting the lease on their country house that they rented. And it's only notable because they rented it like six months ago. I don't really get why this is gossip, except for I think it's being used as another angle to kind of smear them. Because now the story is, oh, well, they can't afford it, which is um, interesting because I don't think that they're paying for much regarding their other residences. So... Just an interesting piece. My theory is that they just released a whole bunch of pictures of the property and now they're, they can't live there. Yeah, I think it's just a security concern. Like it's not easily secured. It's kind of just in the middle of nowhere and everybody knows where it is now. So yeah, it's kind of an interesting angle, though, only because I think when you get into this idea of celebrity, um, you know, the area that they had rented in is full of celebrities and, you know, William and Kate, they have their country home out in the Sandringham area. And, you know, Prince Andrew has his country home, I think. Does he live in the lodge at Windsor? He lives somewhere out in the country, but it's a royal residence. And then, you know, of course, Charles has his um, royal residence on the, I think in Cornwall. Don't, don't quote me on this, but it's kind of interesting that they chose a little bit of a different route. And then I, I'm wondering if, if the optics there were part of the equation as well, where everyone kind of said like, you know, given all this stuff that's happening with Brexit, maybe it doesn't look great for you guys to be renting this house in one of the poshest parts of the country. Yeah, and maybe if you're trying to separate yourself from your Hollywood image, then picking a home that's strategically located close to Soho Farmhouse and all the celebrities in that area isn't really the way to do that. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I only brought it up just because I saw three separate stories about it. So, yeah, it also might be that now that they have a house in Windsor being renovated for them, that they're not going to need two country houses, you know? Yeah, I think that's more than likely what's going on here but like I said seem to be getting a lot of interest for something that I didn't think was very interesting but no I mean none of it's that interesting like I saw an article recently that was like why does why does Megan always wear dark colors like it was this thing like she always wears dark colors and then literally the next day she stepped out in like purple and red I was like yeah I don't think she does but let's maybe just she maybe read not, the article too <laughs> maybe or like maybe let's not focus on the weird stuff like the color of her clothes <laughs> yeah well that's all I have for gossip um I think it's kind of slow 
nothing nothing super exciting going on at the moment although I do think Megan said that she's due in April yeah I think she did say Mm -hmm. that so we might be waiting a while for that royal baby um but we'll see I still wonder if they're just not good if if that's a ploy to get people looking at April and she can quietly have a baby in March maybe she's who knows I don't know like so that would make her like five months pregnant and I don't know she looks a little more like six months that'd make her six months if she was due in April she'd be six months pregnancy is 10 months not nine months okay yeah um it's 40 weeks so um but yeah that's all I got there so stay tuned and if anybody sees anything interesting that they want us to cover by all means let us know Um, But today we are talking about Mary of Teck, who was the wife of King George V of England. And as I mentioned, there's not a whole lot of scandal going on, but we wanted to cover her because she's really is very um, modern or maybe the first modern queen consort. And modern, I'm using that term very, very loosely because um, she was born in the 1800s, but you know, she's the wife of a king, she's the mother of two kings, and she was a grandmother to Queen Elizabeth. So she's definitely part of the recent narrative. And if you watch The Crown, she's very much part of the first season. And I think when people think of George V and they think of Edward VIII and they think of George VI, she's always kind of there in the background. So she's definitely worth covering. You know, I think a lot of the other ladies that we covered were was maybe somewhat surprising where they ended up or you know like when we did Eleanor of Aquitaine it's just interesting that we know so much about her given when she lived but Mary is kind of your perfect example of someone who's literally born and bred to be royal so getting into some of the biographical stuff um, she was born Victoria Mary Augusta Louise Olga Pauline Claudine Agnes Jesus. On May 26th, 1867. Yes. So if we're just judging by the number of names she has, I think we already know she's royal from birth. She's known to the family as May because she was born in May. So they didn't call her by all of those names. Um, Officially, she was known, I think, publicly later on as Victoria Mary. But generally speaking, everybody called her May. And um, in contrast to some of these other consorts that we covered You know, she's arguably the most fit to be a queen. And the reason there is that her father was the Duke of Teck. And this is in the kingdom of Württemberg in Germany. And I don't know if my pronunciation was right there. Yeah, that's fine. And her mother is Princess Mary Adelaide of Cambridge. So she's actually the granddaughter of George III. So as a descendant of George III, Mary of Teck is a royal princess and she's considered they're considered minor royalty and that goes into the weird hierarchy of her father's title well, german so, princes are always a little bit strange to parse out you yeah know? so he's the duke of tech and he's a prince but he's also because his parents had what's known as a morganatic marriage he's called his serene highness what is a morganatic marriage so we talked about this a little bit when we talked about edward the eighth but basically it's where you have a, I guess what you would consider the equivalent of like a civil marriage. Children of this marriage cannot inherit the titles. 
Okay. So that's what they wanted to do with Edward VIII, where he and Wallace would be married and it wouldn't really count. She would, you know, she wouldn't be the queen of England and their children wouldn't be able to inherit the throne. Um, by, by then, I think these types of marriages were kind of on their way out. But her father was the product of one of these marriages. So that's why he doesn't have these this grand title. And he's known as his Serene Highness, which I guess for some distinction that puts him lower down on the totem pole but even though she's considered a german princess she's born and raised in england Um, her family was pretty poor for royalty so they were very dependent on the kindness of their richer relatives so they lived in a house that was granted to them by queen victoria Um, She also spent a good part of her childhood living with rich relatives on the continent. So, you know, even though Queen Victoria has granted them a residence, they still have to staff it. They have to pay to upkeep it, and that can get a little bit expensive. So to economize, they would often just go stay with rich relatives and stay in their big manor houses. Um, But despite this, quote, you know, relative poverty. Um, she was raised alongside the senior royals, including the Prince of Wales and all of his siblings, and was very much a part of this inner circle of Victoria's family from the time of her birth. Victoria was actually very, very fond of her. Um, you know, when she's born, we're smack dab in the middle of Victoria's reign. And um, at the age of 24, she's betrothed to her second cousin once removed, who is Prince Albert Victor, the Duke of Clarence and Avondale. So he is the grandson of Queen Victoria, the son of her firstborn, who was the eventual Edward VII. And May is considered a good match for Victoria's grandson because she's unmarried. She's of royal blood. She's technically a British princess and most most importantly she is not descended from Victoria herself which by this point is something of a rarity because as we know Queen Victoria is the grandmother of Europe and by then all these grandkids were starting to marry each other to disastrous biological results yeah so she's a little bit her blood's a little fresher so the once removed part of that equation is helping her yes so she and her fiance share i guess a great great grandfather so she's descended from george the third and victoria is descended from one of his brothers yeah so they're they're far enough distantly related that everyone's on board unfortunately six weeks after this engagement is announced uh he dies from pneumonia There was a flu epidemic going around and he caught the flu. It turned into pneumonia and he's gone. And everyone's quite shocked by this. You know, May was sad. She was looking forward to the wedding. And his brother, George, is also very upset by this turn of events. So they start spending time together in their shared grief. And eventually they fall in love and get engaged. And this works out for everyone. The public was eager to secure the succession. So now that Albert Victor has died... George is the next in line for the throne after his father. So everyone wants to see him get married and start having children. Victoria's on board. She still thinks May is a great match. And George and May are in love. Um, In fact, they had six children. And some of them, their names may sound familiar. We have Edward VIII, George VI, and then their other children, Mary, Henry, uh, another George, because remember, George the Sixth was a Bertie. And we have John. 
And um, interestingly, George never took a mistress, which was pretty rare in those days. His uh, father was considered to be quite the philanderer. In fact, I saw one documentary that said that he made it an art form. Mm. So the fact that his son never took a mistress was a bit of a bit of a change. Um, and, you know, they love their children. She was reputed to be a good mother, although sometimes her reputation was somewhat of a distant mother. And I think a lot of that is just chalked up to the time period. Um, in the Victorian Edwardian era, you know, it's very common for the children to be raised by nannies. But generally speaking, her children spoke very well of her, uh, with the exception of Edward VIII in his memoirs. He spoke well of her, but there's correspondence after her death to Wallace Simpson, where he says some pretty nasty things about her. But we could probably chalk that up to sour grapes on his part. Yes, I think I think he was some, somewhat biased. So they get off, you know, their marriage gets off to a good start. They've secured, they've secured the succession. They've provided six heirs. Um, and so Queen Victoria dies in 1901. And... George becomes the Duke of Cornwall at this point when his father becomes king. And then later that same year, he's invested as the Prince of Wales. So she's briefly known as the Duchess of Cornwall for about nine months. And then she becomes the Princess of Wales. And they spent the majority of their time as the Prince and Princess of Wales on diplomatic tours throughout Europe and India. Because remember, this is the spread of the British Empire. But this isn't a very long wait for the throne. It's only about nine years later in 1910 when Edward VII dies and George becomes King George V. And so at this point, Mary is his queen consort and it's a bit of an interesting question as to what they're going to call her because I briefly mentioned that she was known as Victoria Mary and George asked her, could you drop one of the names and let's just pick one. You can be queen something. And so May isn't really keen on the idea of being another Queen Victoria. Yeah, Yeah, probably a little soon. A little soon. I think understandably she doesn't want to compete in that arena. So she becomes Queen Mary. And this is a fun fact. Uh, She's the first queen consort to be born in England since Catherine Parr. Ooh, and trivia question. Who was the first queen consort born in England? Elizabeth Woodville. (laughs) Um, So it's kind of interesting because we talked about Catherine Parr. You know, she's the sixth wife of Henry VIII, and that's hundreds of years in the past at this point. And it's been, it's taken that long for another English woman to become queen. And it's also interesting, I think, because now we're at the part where, you know, we're getting into the more modern era. So people are starting to live a little bit longer. Yeah. And so I was reading that she did clash a little bit with Queen Alexandra, who was Edward VII's wife, um, because Alexandra perhaps waited quite some time (laughs) to be queen consort. And when it was over, she wasn't quite ready to let go. So they generally got along, but it was really difficult for Alexandra to give up her position She wanted precedence over Mary at the funeral, and she didn't really want to leave Buckingham Palace, so she took her time vacating, and she also refused to give up some of the jewels that would rightfully have gone to Mary as the queen consort. They didn't belong to Alexandra, but she kept them in her possession. I just thought that was like a little interesting aside, because um, generally speaking, by the time you're taking over there wasn't usually that much competition. Yeah. 
And so at this point, she's the queen consort of England. And I keep bringing this up, but she really did transform this role. And part of that is we're just entering a more modern time. You know, we're starting to enter into the Industrial Revolution. We've got the advent of photography and um, videography. We've also got the onset of World War One, which, as we talked about when we did George V and the rise of the House of Windsor, this really forced the monarchy to modernize. And this is George V, Mary's husband. Yes. So, yeah. We're in that same time period. Exactly. So we talked about this a little bit in that episode, but, you know, the family does have this problem of Germanness. And Mary was very close with her German relations. In fact, during World War I, um, the Crown Princess of Sweden had to help her pass letters back and forth to her favorite aunt who lived in Germany. Um, but despite this Germanness, she's very much an English queen and she does her part to support her subjects. So... You know, we talked about how the family had to change their name and we talked about how they had to really go on this PR campaign to remind everyone that monarchy was important because republicanism is on the rise. So Mary takes this opportunity for her part to show the public that even though she's the queen, she's one of them. She's on their side. So she institutes an austerity drive at Buckingham Palace, which included rationing food. So I'm sure for a bunch of people that were used to having these very fancy dinners every night, that wasn't very fun, but she did it in solidarity with the people in the country. She would also go to the hospitals and visit wounded soldiers and make sure to be seen publicly supporting the war effort. And reportedly, when she would go visit these servicemen, she would get very emotional because, you know, think about the gassing and the horrific injuries that men were suffering. I'm sure for someone of her stature, that was quite jarring to see. But she did it, and there are several photographs of her with her daughter, Mary, in the hospital. Of course, she was doing it dressed to the nines, but she was there. Um, She wasn't rationing clothing. (laughs) No, she wasn't. She still had her jewels on always. Um, And, you know, during this time, we covered this when we did the episode on George V, but he really was struggling with how to present the monarchy. And she's kind of the woman behind the scenes here. She was a staunch supporter of her husband. She was his most trusted advisor. And she probably helped inform a lot of those decisions that he made. Um, I'm sure she was not that happy with having to deny this German side of herself, but she supported her husband when he decided to make the family much more English. And another thing that she would do is she would maintain her public composure at all times. So while this republicanism is running rampant, she's just projecting this image of a confident queen. And that's really easy to do because of the photography and the film of the era. She's the first queen consort to be filmed in color. And, um, you know, she's able to kind of take a page out of Victoria's playbook and use the PR to her own advantage. So how how German did she think of herself? Because, you know, her father is German royalty, but you said, you know, she was born and raised in England. So did she think of herself as English or German? Well, like, did the family of, speak German at home or did they speak English? It's kind of interesting because I've, I've just kept reading some conflicting reports on that. She was born and raised in England, but apparently she had a German accent and she was teased for her accent. So 
I don't know if that's a result of, you know, being surrounded by German relations. You know, when I mentioned they would travel and live with family on the continent, I assume that meant they spent quite some time in Germany. I, I, I don't think, you know, we talked about this with Queen Victoria a little bit too. Victoria was very much an English queen, but she herself spoke German just as well as she spoke English. Mm-hmm. It took them a while to, you know, relinquish these these ties. Well, and like Victoria, you know, George has married a German, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, like, Albert was German and continuing German traditions. You know, a lot of Victorian traditions that we think of Victoria bringing to popularity are very German. You know? Yes. Like Christmas trees and... I think that she probably thought of herself as very German. And, you know, when I was... I remember reading the biography on Edward VIII, and he had a lot of German sympathies, and that was something that he shared with his mother. You know, World War I was kind of shocking for the British royal family because they found themselves on the other side of a war against their cousins. And I think a lot of people in the family, you know, we talk about she's passing letters to her favorite aunt. Yeah, and meanwhile... George V is, his relationship with his cousin, the Kaiser, is deteriorating and he's not allowing his Russian relatives safe haven in England. So they're making a choice. Yes. And I think, um, you know, this is maybe, maybe some of these choices that were made were not going to be her choices, but she supported her husband. And, and that's what I mean about how she was like the perfect queen consort. She just, she went along with it. She played her role. She made sure she was seen serving her people and that's all that was really expected of her so she could you know i'm sure in private she had a lot of conversations but the public wasn't aware of them so it just it just makes her a really interesting woman of the time because she was doing exactly what she was told to do she was raised to follow her husband's lead and that's what she did well and you know and i think that's really important to mention that her doing that was her role and like this it sounds really boring like if she just married this guy and had a bunch of kids and was the perfect queen but by all accounts that is a mark of success in her role and the royal family at the time is doing everything that they can do like everything that they're doing that seems like turning their back on their German relatives and suppressing their Germanness and embracing their English sides and changing their family names it's all in pursuit of the in- endurance of the monarchy right it's yes it's all in service of preservation yeah exactly and that's exactly what she's doing as well I just think it's really interesting to because you know we've covered it before talking about Edward and we talked about George and changing the family's name but to see it from the female perspective of the PR campaign that she's waging of going out among the people and also just being a dutiful wife is really interesting Yeah, and that's what I mean about her being born and bred for this. I mean, she was raised from the cradle to do what was expected of her to project this image of the mystique, the mystique of the royals. She's very good at projecting that image. I was watching one documentary where they had pictures of her and George, and she would wear these towering hats when they did meet and greets so that she could be seen. And she was sometimes made fun of for her attire because she always dressed in this very old-fashioned austere manner but it it helped preserve that mystique of royalty and I think I think that's what she saw her role as was just maintaining the sanctity and privilege of the monarchy for the next generation as she saw it 
That's really interesting because that's exactly what Elizabeth does, right? You know, she wears these old-fashioned looking fusty outfits in garish colors, but it's all a costume in the name of being seen. Yeah, and I'm sure she learned that from her granny. Yeah. And that's that's a good segue is because, you know, by this point, not only does she have children with George, but they also have grandchildren. And this is around the time where she becomes she transitions from queen consort to queen mother. So George V dies on January 20th, 1936. And um, there's actually kind of an interesting rumor that she had the doctor or was part of the decision they injected him with cocaine so that he would die in time for the news to make the morning papers there was no question that he was dying but they didn't want him to linger on and die in the middle of the day I don't know if that's true but it's kind of an interesting story it Um, sounds better if it was just to ease his passing (laughs) not rush his passing yeah I'm not I'm not really sure what happened there um but at this point Mary's eldest son David um ascends the throne as Edward VIII and as we know he's never crowned and if you want the backstory on that you can listen to our episode called the Edward problem which covers this period in the English monarchy um so we know how that turned out but suffice it to say Mary's very unhappy with this turn of events because after everything we just talked about she expected Edward to put all of his youthful indiscretions and frivolity aside and step up and do his duty because that is what she has done her entire life that's what she's bred to do and he refused to do it and she never got over that um in fact you know that's really interesting because when I was reading um reading the book on Victoria's various assassination attempts one thing that they mentioned was Victoria was such a refreshing change from the Hanoverian kings because the Hanovers were not known to be men of great character. And like the reason the succession was never secure is because there was always some problematic son or brother or nephew, you know, causing problems. And um, Albert was also refreshing because he was such a serious-minded person. But that their son, their eldest son was a bit of a problem because he had a touch too much of Hanover in him. (laughs) So it sounds like David had that as well. Just a touch too much of the Hanover. (laughs) They they seem to be very prone to excess. And so, you know, she's, she's not happy with this turn of events, but she supports her second son, Bertie, who becomes George VI when he takes the throne. And she, you know, they, as parents were very concerned about how their eldest boys were going to turn out. And it's kind of interesting. David takes one path and Bertie takes the other because Bertie was very much like David when he was younger, out philandering, taking girlfriends and partying. Much of that was following the lead of his older brother. But when his parents stepped in and said, you need to calm down, you need to do your duty, you need to become a bit more respectable, he did what he was asked. And I think... You know, his mother certainly respected that. And I don't think she was all that upset in the end at the way things turned out. Although she never really did forgive her oldest son for turning away from what she saw as his duty. Um, And then at this time, you know, as we know, George VI has two daughters, Elizabeth and Mary. 
and uh, Queen Mary takes quite an interest in her grandmother's and her granddaughter's upbringing. So she takes them around town, um, showing them things of interest. And, um, you know, they're evacuated from the city during World War II. And so was Mary because George VI, once World War II breaks out, wants his mother, who at this point is quite elderly, to be out of harm's way. This is not what she wants. So against her wishes, she's moved out to Gloucestershire, which I think is how you say that, and resides at Badminton House. But, you know, even though she's been forced to flee the city, she takes it upon herself to support the war effort. So she continues this pattern of visiting troops and factories, and she's um, assisting in these scrap metal drives. So she's still, even at her advanced age, doing her part to show that the monarchy is part of the fabric of society and is there for the people. And then, you know, if you've seen the first season of The Crown, we're kind of getting into these events, but she does die in 1953 at the age of 85, which is a very respectable age. Um, This takes place about 10 weeks before Elizabeth's coronation. So by this point, she's outlived three of her children, um, all of them sons. So we have um, George the sixth dies. That's of course how Elizabeth takes the throne. But prior to that, they had another son whose given name was also George. This is where I get really confused about, you know, they have their Christian names and then they have their regnal names. Um, it's like all the Alberts and the Edwards. Yes, it's a little confusing. So they did have a son, George, who was killed in action. Um, I believe it was... World War II, although it may have been World War One. Well, he died before her, and then they had their youngest son, John, who had a lot of health problems, and he died at the age of 14. So she outlives three of her children, lives to a very respectable age. And what's interesting about her death is she must have known it was coming, and she did, I believe, die of lung cancer. So it wasn't a huge surprise because, you know, they were all really, really, really heavy smokers at this point. Um, But she insisted that in the event of her death, Elizabeth's coronation not be delayed. So she didn't want anything to get in the way of the pomp and circumstance of this institution that she spent her entire life propping up. And so she's buried at St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle, and then Elizabeth is crowned 10 weeks later. And generally speaking, she's remembered as a popular queen. And I think in hindsight, looking at all of this, that's generally due to her help with the war effort and with the people during both world wars. You know, when I went into this, I thought maybe I'd find some more meat there. But really, I think the reason why her legacy endures is because she was just this quiet, steady presence through all of this turmoil. And she's very, you know, she's very easy to pick out in photographs. She had a very particular way of presenting herself and she was known for that very old-fashioned style of dress. So when you see pictures of the family, you see, um, you know, when she's young, she's dressed the same under the reign of Edward VII as she is when she's married to her husband, George V. And then when her son takes the throne, in all of those family photographs, she looks exactly the same. Her hair is the same. Her dress is the same. She just is this constant, quiet presence which is but that's a really powerful statement for her to make through her clothes like that like she is a constant powerful presence therefore the monarchy is a constant and powerful presence yeah you know if you go back to this idea of like what can fashion do for you i think you know she took the 
stand that it's it's like a costume it's a it's a uniform so she didn't really change with the times and she just you know kept doing what was successful for her so before we end this I did want to get into speaking of this costumes and the fashion I did want to get into one little interesting tidbit because the thing I remembered about Mary is that in all of these pictures she may be in these very old-fashioned clothes but they are not simple clothes she's dressed very fancy dressed to the nines and almost always absolutely draped in jewels so she's really known for her love of collecting in fact she's single-handedly responsible for the bulk of the current royal jewel collection Hmm. Um, in fact if there's a great blog and i think i've mentioned them before called the royal order of sartorial splendor who do all these great deep dives into the royal jewels and they referred to her as the last great magpie because she did all of this collecting and she absolutely adored wearing these massive diamonds she loved to collect objects and it wasn't just jewelry it was anything valuable artistic historical that was connected to the royal family she would try to go out and collect it so she was actually kind of known for this and a lot of people were really unhappy because what she would do is you know maybe you're at dinner at the earl of something something's house and she turns to him at the dinner table and says oh i heard you have that painting that used to belong to queen victoria wow it sure would be nice to have that back and then they would feel obligated to give it to her. She didn't even pay for it? No. Sometimes <laughs> she did. Sometimes she was known for really overpaying for things. Generally speaking, that would be in the jewel department. But mm-hmm. um, she was kind of known for kind of going out and subtly hinting that she'd like these things back. So she is responsible for a large part of the current royal collection. And speaking of diamonds, her most famous pieces are these diamonds called the Cullinan diamonds. And maybe we can put some pictures up in the show notes because these are not tiny little diamonds. So basically, there's a single diamond that originated in South Africa, and it was over 3,000 carats. Wow. Which How is... How big is that? really really big Um, I can't even picture a 3,000 carat diamond Um, but it was cut into nine smaller gems Uh, that's a relative term because these were still very very massive and then several smaller chips now the chips themselves were humongous Um, so Queen Elizabeth actually wears the smaller ones on occasion they're known as granny's chips (laughs) Um, there's a brooch sometimes you'll see her wearing this brooch that has these two massive diamonds on them and those are the small ones um two of the bigger ones are set in the i think one of the crowns and then maybe in the scepter or in one of the ceremonial items only really used during coronations so they are very much part of the royal jewels so sometimes you'll see queen elizabeth out in these little chips but i love the casualness of that though like oh i'm just wearing granny's chips (laughs) yeah well granny used to wear them like on one in one photo she's visiting the hospital she's got the chips on (laughs) <laughs> Can you imagine going well, to visit wounded wearing, soldiers? I suppose. <laughs> yeah, apparently she would bedeck herself in so many diamonds that it would be blinding to the people who were standing in front of her. 
But I thought that was kind of an interesting aspect of her personality because we think of her as this very severe, austere woman, but she actually did have a bit of a fetish for gems. And all in all, I think she's a good one to cover because she generally marks the beginning of what I would consider the modern queen consort. And I think even just in terms of your modern queen, I think Elizabeth took a lot of cues from her, certainly at the beginning of her reign. Um, And, you know, she's definitely an example that you can you can see the impact of um you know and again just going back to the crown she was certainly an imposing figure in the family and she took this royal role very seriously so it's kind of interesting to wonder you know what would she think of these more modern royals you know what would she think of kate what would she think of megan um you know my guess is she would probably really disapprove of their very common backgrounds maybe she would or maybe she would understand Given her inclination to further the monarchy at any cost, really, maybe she would understand the need to modernize by having a more egalitarian background. No, I don't think so. (laughs) Just because of the way she treated Wallace Simpson. I mean, she was absolutely appalled at the idea. And of course, you know, we've talked about that. The big hurdle there was the divorce. But... You know, she was appalled at the idea of this American divorcee daring to think she could be the queen, that she could occupy her role. And so, you know, I think even... But was that because she was American or because she was divorced and also because she was Wallace Simpson, whose personality was not easy? I think it was a combo of all three. But I think, you know, the biggest thing she didn't have going for her is she wasn't, you know, a royal born and bred princess and I think Mary you know I keep saying she's the first modern queen consort but I think she's also the last holdout of this idea that you must be of a certain breeding to be in this role of well, course maybe we, she that's was the partly because I mean like had she not insisted on that maybe Edward the eighth would have been king and we wouldn't be where we are Elizabeth wouldn't be queen yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell what would have happened because when we talk about all of this, you know, I think you can't talk about how stuff has changed without recognizing that there's been one person on the throne for decades. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, who knows? Who knows? I think a lot of this is the family can modernize quietly because there's the same monarch in place. But, um, you know, I think she's kind of a holdover from that Victorian era or Victorian Edwardian era. And then, um, you know, she dies right as we enter the fifties and who knows, who knows what she would think, but I don't think she'd approve (laughs) just from what I read. I don't think she'd approve. That's all I have on Mary of tech. Like I said, you know, she's kind of, I think she's kind of a good one to end on because she's just, exactly what yeah she's it should be brought us into the the modern era so um i think there's only one more queen consort after her actually so um and we haven't really talked that much about the queen mother but we will at some point yeah but not Not in this this series series. yep so that's our series on english queens and some queen consorts i think i called them wannabes not because they want to be queen and they're not, but because I think sometimes that's the public attitude towards them. I think we saw that really explicitly with Elizabeth Woodville, 
Well, um, we had a couple of queen wannabes. We had Jane Grey and Mary of Scots. Yeah, and Matilda, and there were some wannabes. But yeah, I think it's an interesting group to put together. So we are going to take another break, though, for our, our brains and to rest ourselves. Yes. Yeah. And, and then we'll I be believe you're doing point. a bit of traveling. I am. Actually, I'm very excited because I am going to see some of these palaces that we talk about. I'm going to London and it's very exciting. I will definitely be putting some stories up on the Instagram. Nice. Yeah. Or maybe I'll be sending Claire photos and she'll be doing it. <laughs> you can Instagram from London. Yeah, no, I can. Um, I, but I'm very excited to see some of these places that we've talked about in person uh, maybe even some of these jewels if they're on display at the tower yeah it should be pretty cool it, I was I'm traveling obviously with coworkers for work and um, you know planning a little bit of sightseeing and I was thinking um, maybe I have to go by myself because I don't know how many palaces are too many palaces for other people <laughs> <laughs> never too many no <laughs> And I'm doing some traveling to other countries as well, so maybe I'll get inspired for some non-English royals to talk about as well. Yeah, well, if you go to Germany, you can you can see the German relations. So there you go. Yeah, and the Danish ones and the <laughs> bohemian ones. We haven't decided who we're covering next, but we'll keep everybody posted. I think so. we are going to attempt to maybe head east with our focus out of out of England, maybe out of the west like more Western European monarchies as well. Maybe mix it up a little bit. Yeah, we'll see We'll see what inspires us. Or we could end up right back here talking about England. So. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. That's why you have to stay tuned. Yeah, so uh, we don't have an estimated air date on that yet, but it, it won't be too long, so probably yeah. a month or so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, well, talk to you next time when we are back. Until then. All right, until then. MonarchCast is produced by me, Allie, and me, Claire, and our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.